Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra-wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well. Here's your host, Eric Scoville. Welcome to the, uh, the the next episode of Wealth Well Done podcast, where we share tactical, practical, and spiritual advice to help you do your wealth well done. Last week, we had a sit down with Isaac Bennett as we went over uh, his his approach to understanding um, how, how investments actually work and, and how to approach investments differently. This week, um, we have the, the privilege to interview the CEO of REM Capital, Robert Ritzenthaler. Uh, Robert is a a multifamily investor here, and Isaac uh, mentioned quite a bit last week of the how big of a proponent he was of real estate, especially multifamily, and so that feeds perfectly into this next conversation here with Robert. Full disclaimer: um, regardless of whether someone is licensed or has a fiduciary responsibility, uh, all the strategies suggestions that we offer in here are meant to be generic and informative. Uh, they are not financial advice to a specific listener. So please do your own research, consult your own team of licensed professionals to decide if any of these decisions um, you know, make good sense for you. Uh, second disclaimer here, uh, as, as was with last week, um, I, I do business with Robert and with REM Capital. So everything, there's a reason why I do that. Uh, there's a reason why we have uh, find a, found this partnership together, but I also don't want to uh, have you feel like it, at any point we're trying to hide something here. So uh, Robert's going to share a lot of uh, information to help educate you on real estate, on investing in general. And um, with that, we'll also find out what he has going on uh, with our within REM Capital. So without that, or without further ado here, I'd like to introduce Robert Rissenthaler. Um, Robert is the founder of REM Capital. Uh, REM is, a, is this incredible gem of a real estate company here, which has a focus on conservative, steady, uh, kind of middle of the fairway type multifamily investments as well as how we've been looking at them. They should eclipse half a billion uh, in assets under management this year and probably go well beyond that. So Robert, um, would you maybe give the listeners a little bit of background on REM Capital? Absolutely. And good to be here. Thanks for having me yeah, on the thanks show. For being here. Exciting to uh, share, hopefully some helpful knowledge along the way. Right. But um, yeah, so a little bit about REM. It's been about, gosh, five or six years ago now since uh, we started REM. And ironically enough, there was no grand plan. So it was kind of just, uh, you know, you're doing your thing, you're working hard, nose down, and all of a sudden, you know, stuff starts happening. And that's kind of how REM came about. I actually thought, when we started, I did, you know, I did do a basic business plan, just kind of, okay, well, you know, what, what kind of cash flow, this kind of thing. And I thought, Hey, if we had a hundred million in five years, hmm. that'd be pretty sweet. I'd, I'd be good with that. You right. know, uh, worked in corporate for, you know, a couple decades, always thought about doing my own thing, but you know, it's a pretty big jump to go from W2 to making the rain. That certainly is. <laughs> I imagine a lot of listeners on this, uh, listeners here have, have done that W2 to entrepreneurial jump. Yeah, it's a, it's a big jump. Um, but it uh, works out really well. And I'm, I'm excited that, that it has gone beyond expectations. And as you mentioned, we're, we're about a half a billion today after five years, um, kind of enjoying the break in the market, honestly, right now, 
where it gives us a little pause to focus on our operations, build out our team, really hone in on the you know the core of our business, which is property management 101. If you're if you're in this business, that is your business. <laughs> right. And and so your portfolio of properties, can you give a, a brief overview on on what type of properties you manage now? Yeah, so we are primarily workforce housing, so BNC class properties all across the southeast, Midwest, and Texas. Got about four thousand units, uh, over twenty-four properties in mainly major markets. So Cincinnati, Columbus, Dallas, San Antonio, Houston, Charlotte, Atlanta, Orlando, um, some smaller markets too, but a lot of larger markets where we feel like we can provide value. You know, buy some older product, yeah, uh, fix it up. And, you know, there's there's no new product being built at that price point. So it's kind of a nice, it's a good business plan. I mean, it's been working for decades, but obviously it's worked really well the last decade. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. So then the the scale of the properties that you are uh, acquiring now, what, what type of scale are we talking about? Yeah, so I would say for the most part, it's 100 to 300 units, uh, kind of a, call it 200 unit average unit size that gives us the ability to have full-time on-site staff, uh, get a little bit of economies of scale in terms of production for renovations and things of that nature. Um, and then obviously, you know, trying to build out each of our areas to where they have scalability. Okay. So Dallas is an example. We've got three properties in Dallas, three properties in Atlanta, you know, larger markets. Um, and it's nice, you know, you get a you get a team built up where you've got a few maintenance folks that can kind of float around. Somebody's on vacation and, you know, you don't miss a beat. Not a, right. not a big deal. So that's been really nice. Okay. Um, and obviously, if we continue to grow, we'll see the benefits of that that economies of scale too, which is which is going to be exciting. So. Right. Right. All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, I want to jump right into the hard part. Any any entrepreneur, and honestly, everyone, we we've all experienced failures. We've all experienced lessons learned the hard way. Um, I think we often you know. I've shared my, my prayers often to, you know, Lord, let me learn lessons the easy way. Let me, let me pick up things from, from wisdom of other people, wisdom from the Bible to learn lessons the easy way. But you've been through, you've been through a couple of the big ones here. You, you have been in, you know, in, in the tech world in 01, you have been mm-hmm. in real estate in New York in 08, and you've obviously been in, in real estate then in during COVID as well. And I was wondering if we could go over a lesson that you've learned from each of those, whether, whether it's around a failure or just an opportunity, what, what worked well or, or what didn't like, what's a, a lesson that you learned from each of those uh, different economic yeah. downturns? Absolutely. I always love to share that because I think it's important to not forget the difficult lessons. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I saw a great post the other day. I think it was on LinkedIn. Somebody said something about, you know, I've had great things that have lifted me up, situations lifted me up, and then other situations just crushed me. And I'm thankful for both. And I can honestly say that because you learn a lot more about yourself in the situations that crush you if you're humble, if you're willing to learn. Right. And I think those are what mold you for future greater success, really. Um, I, I couldn't from, agree more. I, I, yeah. There was a sermon that, uh, that I listened to here not that long ago that, that talked about that. And I actually became mm. incredibly grateful for the hardships that, that one of my businesses has faced and faced this last year. And, and even just this whole entrepreneurial journey that, like it's taken this long, but now through that on the other side, and I'm not even on the other side of, of some of that yet, but just mm-hmm. in, in the middle of it, just realizing God's got a plan and it, it's going to work. Um, I, I just found myself being incredibly grateful and not needing to control the outcome and, and get to the pinnacle of success 
tomorrow. Right. So, right. Right. Yeah. I think that's one of our biggest dangers in America is that we subconsciously prioritize the dollar as number one on the list. Absolutely. Subconsciously. You know, I don't do it consciously, but subconsciously, I think we do that. And so it's, it's a constant, I don't want to call it a battle, but you know, it's something I think we know how to remind ourselves that isn't the number one priority. It's, uh, you know, it's family, it's our faith. It's, it's a lot of other things. Right. So anyway, but back to your question, um, just one example that I, I like to give, um, as you mentioned, I used to work on wall street before I got into real estate. And, uh, so I had actually been investing since I was probably in junior high school. Okay. I was one of those oddballs that, you know, went to the library, opened up the morning star report. It's like, where am I going to put my money? <laughs> right. You know, um, no computers, no internet. It was just paper and pencil back then. But I just, uh, I had a, a, a real desire and an excitement about being able to invest and allow other people to, uh, you know, use my capital, obviously to grow, um, but then receive a profit from that. And it was a pretty cool model. I thought, Hey, I'm making money while I'm sleeping. What's wrong with that? Right. <laughs> so I did that for a number of years, kind of helped pay, pay my way through college doing that. And then when I graduated with the finance degree, I said, well, I'm going to go to New York and we're going to do this professionally. So I actually started a small hedge fund and raised some capital and started investing. And my specialty was pre-IPO technology shares. You can only imagine what that was like before and after the tech bubble. <laughs> right. Right. No wonder it drew you into it in the beginning. Right. Yeah. So in the beginning, making great money. And then, of course, it all kind of went up in smoke at some point. And one of the things that I learned through that was that sometimes the word that not that I didn't know this, but sometimes the word that you give to your investors is more important than the contract that you sign with your investors. Mm, yeah. And I think that uh, in business, most people will fall back on the letter of the contract. And I've always felt like that's the minimum. And that if you are going to live bigger and better than that, then you should live by the spirit of the contract. And so uh, with the investors that I had, I, you know, I, I decided to shut down the hedge fund. Obviously, the market had crashed and kind of game over. Right. Um, but over the next, uh, I want to say three, four or five years, I took a portion of my personal W-2 earnings. I went back, you know, went into corporate real estate and I paid, a, you know, a good chunk of that that investment back to them. And it wasn't something that I had to do. I mean, we all took a risk. We all, mm-hmm. we all took a loss. The market crashed. It wasn't like, you know, I was in the Bahamas uh, with, uh, what's his name? Sam, <laughs> yeah, Sam Free. SPF. You know, it, it was just the market crashed and nobody would have known. But I did feel some obligation to these people and I knew them. You know, they were friends of mine. I had a relationship with them. And so I, I felt some obligation to do what I could to try to help them get back whole. And, you know, I didn't get them whole. It wasn't like I was some, uh, you know, multimillionaire, but I, but I just took that as a, as an opportunity to feel a little bit of pain yeah. and to really kind of burn it into my brain and say, Hey, you know, this is, this is serious stuff. And, uh, you know, next time we do this, we're going to be a little more careful so that this doesn't happen. <laughs> that is, that is tremendous. What, what that yeah. says about your, your character. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel that way today. You know, I think, um, there's a balance obviously between, over committing to something, you know, you got to think practically, you can't always, uh, you know, be the hero. And that's, right. that's a human tendency too. Right. And and we've had to, you know, a couple of deals recently, we had to cut distributions first time we've ever had to do that. And, you know, I didn't want to, 
but there was kind of a practical element of, hey, the market's tough and we've hit some bumps in the road and we need to preserve cash. But I also didn't think we needed to completely cut distributions. And I think a lot of people would have said, oh, we're done. We're not paying anything. You know, we're out. Yeah. And I just felt like, you know, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Let's give it a little bit of time. Let me uh, work really hard to see if I can kind of turn the corner here on these couple properties and, and get us back on our feet. So, okay. you know, at the end of the day, we all make business decisions, right? And uh, I just feel strongly that if you're, if you're serving others, I think at the end of the day, you're going to see good results. Yep. Um, you know, you, may, you might not be the next gazillionaire. But again, that's really not the goal. You know, the goal is to help other folks along the way. And usually you're pretty successful in doing that. <laughs> right, right. I love it. All right. Thank you. So what about what about doing real estate in, in New York? And were you downtown New York or where were you at in 08? Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, in 08, I was actually in Tampa. Oh, you, okay. You're in Tampa. Okay. Yeah, I was working for a REIT at the time. Um, yeah, New York was mainly, you know, Manhattan, little bit of we had properties in the bronx queens out in new jersey uh so kind of all over the place okay it was value add it was office it was redevelopment um mixed use uh all kinds of different stuff so it's great and i'm really thankful for that to be honest with you to start in commercial real estate in new york city uh like any big city i mean it's one of the great sandboxes of the world so you can really learn a lot right and i had a couple of great uh owners partners that i worked under that kind of had that old school mentality. They said, "Hey, let's give you an inch, see how you do. If you do well, we'll give you an, we'll give you a foot, and if you do well with a foot, we'll give you you know a few feet, and just let you run with it." Yeah. So it's great. You know, they were great mentors, helped me really learn the business, um, guided me along my path as I really grew in the business, and I'm very appreciative of that. So it was a great start. Um, and so, how was that company situated? Come wait. Well, so they continue to grow. I mean, they're okay. one of the largest landlords in New York City today. Uh, I don't know how many units they have. I'll bet you they have 50,000, I don't know, a lot of units. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, they, they made it through the downturn. There were a couple projects that actually went through back in 2001, two, three with them where, you know, we bought a project. We had very little equity in the deal. The market was good at the time. And all of a sudden, the market started to turn. So we said, okay, well, you know, what are we going to do? And one of my projects was to recapitalize that particular project and get it back on its feet. And so, again, kind of right out of the gate, good understanding of uh, leverage, which can be great. But at the same time, you got to be prepared to pivot if you need to. Right. And so <clears throat> we worked hard, recapitalized it. We took out a piece of debt that was kind of a, a mez debt, a mezzanine piece of debt, replaced it with some equity. Uh, got a good, strong balance sheet partner on the books. And um, I want to say three, four years later, we actually sold the property and made about 30 million bucks uh, because of that. Okay. So, you know, that was, for me, that was a great starting point uh, of a lifelong lesson in real estate that if you buy quality real estate in a good market and you have the liquidity to survive a downturn, it's pretty tough to lose money. It really is. Yeah. Uh, real estate is just one of those asset classes that you do need liquidity. But if you're reasonably competent and you know you keep the lights on and you can survive the downturn, you're probably going to do just fine. And uh, that that was kind of the lesson of that particular project. <laughs> okay. All right. Very good. And, and how about COVID? 
getting multifamily and we're, and there's all this talk going around about, we're going to stop. Yeah. No one's got to pay rent anymore. How did you, how did you guys navigate COVID? Well, you know, first of all, I think again, there was a lot of fear back in March, April of 2020. And a lot of guys said, Oh, we're going to cut distributions because we don't know what's going to happen. And I kind of looked around at the data. I looked at what was happening in our portfolio. We were doing fine. And I said, no, we're not going to cut anything. We may need to in the future, but right now we're not going to. So we just kind of kept a steady hand. We have a you know good amount of working capital reserve on all of our properties, so that helps. But I just felt like we didn't really need to react to the market. Now, as you mentioned, there was some talk about this, you know, nobody's going to have to pay rent and all this nonsense. And there was, you know, there was eviction moratorium, which probably cost us somewhere in the neighborhood of $500,000 to a million dollars that, you know, effectively most of that came out of my pocket at the end of the day. And, you know, multiply that times however many thousands of other owners in the country. Right. So, you know, we can debate the the uh, fairness of that <laughs> policy. <laughs> um, but, you know, one of the things, a little bit of a tangent here, one of the things that we did during that time period, and uh, I felt like should have been done more, I actually went to all of our residents and I said, listen, if the government uh, effectively has taken your job away and you don't have an ability to pay rent, let us know. And if you legitimately need assistance, I will personally pay your rent. And I meant it. Wow. And I felt like that was my antidote to complaining about the government doing what they did. Uh, because, you know, I think it's easy for all of us to complain and say, well, the government doesn't know what they're doing. And these people sure. are just always blah, blah, blah. You know, you complain. And it, it's not unjustified. It wasn't. But I always feel like, hey, what's my solution? What can I do to counteract? What's a better solution? And I felt like that was the right solution to say, hey, we don't need eviction moratorium. If every single landlord in the country who has the means offered their residents, the ones that are, you know, legitimately need help, yeah. offer to pay their rent. Um, I don't think we would have needed that eviction moratorium. I think people would have worked it out. But, you know. That was one small, small way that I felt like we could do the right thing. Well, I, I applaud that. And again, that whole wealth, well done concept, you're, you're going into yeah. practical application there. You've been blessed and you have, you're not just focused on self. That is that you take a selfless approach there. So yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate hearing that. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's always a little bit uh, painful when, you know, you get to the other side and like we did a study of the folks who didn't pay rent during the COVID era and, you know, arguably 80% of them had jobs the entire time, could have paid rent and just didn't. Yeah. So yes, was there 20% that legitimately needed the assistance? Absolutely. But there were four times that number of people who just flat out took advantage of the system. And that's disappointing. Because that's not, that's not America. That's not how we, you know, that's not how our country was built and it's not how it works. So, right. you know, frustrating, but it is what it is. <laughs> okay. All right. All good lessons. So switching into a little bit more to, to, to really get into your expertise. First, I, I want to understand how do you, how do you define and assess risk? From from an investment standpoint, if we if you're talking to to investors who are looking at the, their nest egg type investment, and again, whether that's a a significant portion of of their nest egg, or you know, if they're not as familiar with real estate and they're and they're more dabbling, you know, with less than ten percent of their portfolio, either way, how do you how do you define and assess risk? Yeah, well, I think number one, your risk in any investment 
always comes back to the operator that you're invested with. So, you know, maybe you look at Coca-Cola and you say, well, who am I invested with? Well, there's a brand, there's a management team, there's a track record. That's your risk. Um, in a multifamily investment like ours, you're invested in me. You're invested in our team. Who are these people? What do they know? What's their track record? Are they honest? Uh, I think that's the number one risk that anybody faces in investment is the team that they're invested in, the people. Because at the end of the day, machines aren't making the world go round as much as we use machines. <laughs> right. Oh, that's <laughs> you know, a good point. People. Yeah, that's a great point. So I always tell, I just tell everybody, I said, listen, you got to do your homework. You've got to assess the risk of that team that you're invested in. And that's one of the reasons that I really like multifamily, or, or I shouldn't just say multifamily, but I like this, the, the type of investment that we offer because it's direct. You're able to, as an investor, pick up the phone, call me, and ask me about a particular deal. How is it doing? What's the leasing look like? How's the cash flow? Yeah. You can't do that with a, with a standard stock market investment. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest in the stock market. That's not my point. But I love the direct approach because I think it creates a lot of good accountability. Uh, it takes a little bit more work, but it creates some good accountability. And going back to your question, it really mitigates a lot of the risk that I think you see when you have, you know, I don't know how many, how many hundreds of millions or billions that were lost with FTX as an example. Right. You know, very little accountability. Right. So those are the things that to me, they always come back to the person, the team. Now, I think the asset class certainly has risk to it. Uh, you know, I think we would all agree that crypto, as an example, is riskier than real estate. Yep. You know, but it depends on what kind of real estate. And, you know, I mean, you know a lot more about crypto than I do, but I'm kind of generalizing. <laughs> well, but you're spot <laughs> but, on, too. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, certainly the asset class has a component to that risk. And, uh, you know, I think multifamily, historically speaking, has been one of the lowest risk investments in general. So not to not to plug multifamily, but just kind of getting back to your question about how do I assess risk? And I think it's the team, number one. And number two is the actual asset class or investment vehicle that you're using. Sure. Okay. All right. You spend um, you spend a lot of effort trying to educate your investors. You've got your mm -hmm. CEO blog. You do tons of informational videos. And if someone wanted to get online right now, if they, if they search YouTube for REM Capital, just find a bunch of different educational videos, you know, some short minute long videos and some are an hour long. And you, you put a lot of effort in educating your investors. What's, what's the intent behind that? And what are, what's the fruit that you see out of that? Yeah. Well, and, and I appreciate you asking that. I think the number one reason for that comes back to the whole risk question. How do we assess risk? Well, we assess risk by getting to know the team and asking the right questions about the team. So my goal through this educational process is to bring a lot of folks into the real estate space that haven't been in the real estate space, educate them about the opportunities that are there, but then also give them the tools to actually weigh the pros and cons of not only the investment vehicle, but the actual team that they're partnering with. Because the more educated that they are and the better decisions they can make, obviously that benefits all of us. You know, we don't want people out there investing in a in a uh, Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme, we right. want people investing with a good company, you know, that's going to be around in 20, 30 years because it helps all of us. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. So that's really the, the driving force behind that. I think, too, sort of secondarily, we're in a relationship business. Uh, it just, I, I don't know, I guess you could argue that maybe it doesn't have to be that way. 
but I really believe that business is, is a relationship. Any business is a relationship business. And so for me, educating our investors is a way to build that relationship with them through education, through adding value. And, you know, you've heard me say this a lot since we've been working together. I'm just big on guys. I want to, I want to give much more than I'm asking. So, you know, what am I, what am I giving out? What am I adding value to before I ever make the ask? And sometimes you may not even have to make the ask because people, you know, they they kind of look at the content and say, wow, you know, these guys care about us. They, They seem pretty knowledgeable. What do you do? Oh, you're in commercial real estate. Okay. Interesting. Oh, you got any spots open? You know, right. so it's it's just a totally different mentality. It happens to work for my personality. I'm not a sales guy. I don't like being pushy sales guy. So I just kind of set off and said, well, we're going to try to do it the unsales way and see if it works. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, I think I, I, I think I absolutely admire that. I have a lot to I have a lot to learn and grow from that side for the other phases of my business to, mm-hmm. to be more educational first. Um, I, I think that that's an opportunity for me and I am learning and, and taking a page out of your playbook there as well. So <laughs> it's a great mindset. I really, I think it's a great mindset. You know, but, and I yeah. think, I think on a personal level, uh, it keeps your focus in the right place too. And I appreciate that because again, as I mentioned at the beginning of our, our, you know, chat here, I think subconsciously money, tends to be number one for the best of us. Sure. And so how do we constantly kind of bring ourselves back, bring ourselves back? And I think by generating and creating and cultivating a culture of giving, it balances that out subconsciously, hmm. you know, and that's important. That's a great so, point. It's, it's that it's the sneakiest idol. M- yes. Money is the sneakiest idol. Yes. Not, I mean, most uh, Americans would not think that they are, that they have idols because uh, they don't have, you know, wood carvings. <laughs> you know, and that they bow down to, but, but right. man, if you look at the amount of time and effort we put around money, I think, I think it's, it'd be tough to make a tough to make a case against money, not being an idol and, and, and honestly, in most of our lives. And so, yeah, that's, it's a sobering thought, but all right. There's so, a, uh, if you got one minute, sure. I'll just share a quick story. I saw a wall street journal poll recently. I think it was this weekend came out and they had kind of done a cultural poll of America. Um, and yeah, obviously there's a margin of error and all this kind of good stuff, but I thought it was kind of fascinating. So, uh, in general, religion, drastic decrease, people saying that religion was important to them, drastic, um, children and family, drastic decrease, not important anymore. You know, being involved in civics, drastic decrease. No, who cares? You know, waste of time. Yep. The one thing that was consistent across the board, Republicans, Democrats, independents, you name it, age, doesn't matter. Everybody said money was the most important thing. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I thought, well, it, it, it's not surprising, but that is our culture. Yeah. And so I think that we can we can make a difference by being a little bit unique in that respect. And uh, I don't think long term with money being number one that we will be successful. I think short term, I think if you put money first, usually it looks pretty good. Sure. But I don't think in the long term it, it works that way. And so. You know, I look at my kids, my grandkids, my great grandkids. I look at REM as a uh, generational company for lots of generations of investors and their kids to benefit from real estate. Yeah. But hopefully in a productive way, in a positive way. And, you know, we can do something in a, in a good direction for society. So anyway. Well, let's uh, so before we go into the macroeconomic climate, let's <laughs> let's stay on f- family for a minute here. Family and just family faith and in, in the 
the combination of that. So you are, you know, a lot of people view themselves as too busy, right? Too busy. You know, we, we wear that as a badge of honor. How you doing? I'm busy. Yeah. You, you have every right to be busy. Some people are busy on, on a, on a much, much uh, lower workload than you. You have a large family, a growing family still, and a large business that's growing. Um, that's not, that that's spread across a good chunk of the United States. How are you, how are you trying to, I'm going to, you know, coin the phrase of the, the podcast. How are you trying to do your wealth? Well done. How are you trying to, to steward money? Well, um, not only in, from a faith perspective, but also from a family perspective and, and, and show your mm. children work ethic and, and not let them just, just, you know, develop an entitled attitude. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that last part is a big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to be in the same boat. And so that's yeah, the idea sure. is, you know, let's, let's all share, learn and grow together. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'll start with kind of the big picture, uh, which I would say is setting your priorities in the right place, setting your vision, setting your goals. And I think, you know, none of us is going to do it perfectly. We know that um, we're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fall short of our of our goals, our ideals what we should do, whatever, whatever that is. Yep. But one of the things that helps me is to really on a daily basis, sit down and kind of realize that, look, there's no way that I can get everything done that I need to get done today. Just no way. And if I try to accomplish that, I'm going to sacrifice something that's more important. So I have to be willing to, first of all, let certain things go, but I have to be, uh, you know, let's call it wise enough, business savvy enough to know what things can go by the wayside and what things can't. And I think that's a, that's a skill. It takes time to develop that skill. And that's one of the things that I try to work with our folks in our, on our team in terms of prioritizing. What are your top three things? What are your top five things? What are you trying to do this week? Uh, it, it sounds very practical, but I think it's practical as well as spiritual. I really do. Because yeah. if you do that practically, it actually helps keep your mind clear spiritually as well. So for me, that's one of the things that I try to do every day and just realize, hey, I can't do it all. What are the most important things that I need to accomplish? Okay, I need to, I need to do you know this, this, and this on the business. I need to uh, stop work at this time, spend some time with the family. I need to disconnect for this amount of time, um, whatever those things are. And I just literally every day just remind myself, okay, those are your five to-dos. Just get those five done. Okay. Of course, you get a lot of other stuff done in the meantime. Sure. But I really feel like just coming back to that, it's amazing how uh, you can be successful with that simple mindset. And, and I guess, you know, maybe simple is, is an understatement, but it is kind of simple. It's just, hey, what are the most important things that I need to get done right. today? Right. And don't worry about the rest because you can't control everything. <laughs> no, no, absolutely right. Yeah, someone had shared with yeah. me the the top five, top one of five principles, or the top five most important things to that I need to get done today. And then what's the top one? And I, I don't go to number two until I finish number one. If if all I do right. today is work on the most important thing, then that that is time best spent. Not right. not all of the little things of well, let me let me go through and clean up my Outlook calendar for for three weeks from now. That that's not what's right. important today. So right, right, okay, yeah. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you how many times. I'm in the evenings sitting with the kids, with my wife, spending time with them. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I've got 
500 emails I need to work through. Oh my gosh, I got to do this underwriting. I got to finish sending, you know, doing this report. I got to call the so-and-so. I got to make, I, and I just, I'm like, I talk to my, you know, literally talking to myself. I'm like, dude, you just need to forget about it. Just stop. <laughs> right. Just stop. Right. Because you're not going to get it all done. And, you know, obviously at the end of the day, you have to be honest with yourself and say, well, if I'm consistently got all this stuff getting done and I'm not able to honor my obligations to my investors and my employees, okay, then I need to figure that out. I need to hire some help. I need to, you know, restructure the business. So there is a practical component to it. Um, but there's a point at where you, there's a point at where you have to just say, hey, and we, we've got it covered and we're not going to get everything done. And, you know, that's life and you got to keep your priorities straight. Yeah. The beauty of it, I think, is that when you do that, it's amazing how I believe that God will kind of fill in the blanks, if you will. Yeah. And, you know, it's not some, you know, I don't know, I'm not trying to be overly weird about it, but it's not some, you know, weird thing. It's just, I just don't think those things end up being as important as they seem to be at the end of the day when you keep your priorities in the right place. And uh, it, it's a freeing experience it really is that, that's true <laughs> to life i mean that that's yes. that's a that's a message i share regularly on the you know the, i think it was francis chan maybe used a uh mm. an analogy if he had a rope that was he had a, a small red end on it and then this long massive rope and he he said you know this is life right here you know from beginning you know birth first first kiss whatever you know big thing that happened in school marriage and and on down the line, kids and, and anything else that's happened that seemed like such a big deal in the moment. As soon as you get on the other side of that, you know, that that death, as soon as you get on the other side of that, that's where Paul says, you know, the cares of this world won't even be worth considering. And it's just from an eternal perspective, it doesn't, all those things that seem so big, you know, whether it's the email that seems so big tonight, or it's right. the, you know, how are you going to navigate, you know, this current macroeconomic climate that we're going to get into, you know, right now, like it, at the end of your at the end of your time, that won't matter at all. And so, just right. from from that perspective, it, it absolutely gives peace. And yeah, that's that's a liberating feeling, no doubt about it. That's true. That's so true. I, I think on that note here, we will go ahead and we're going to cut this into two two episodes. So we are going to stop this one here and then um, pick up next week with we're going to dive into the macroeconomic climate here. How Robert is looking at investing in a rising and falling interest rate environment. We're going to go over some other stuff there, hit the banking crisis as well, um, and also talk about the uh, the development that Robert has going on here um, in St. Petersburg. So join us next week as we as we go ahead and continue this, this conversation with Robert. Thanks for joining. Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And together, we'll continue to improve our relationship with money, and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.